chapter 6. We're reading verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrow, sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And he immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray that we'll, that we'll hear it rightly. Father, we come again to ask for you to minister to us by your Spirit's power. You'll enable me to proclaim this, your word, the truth, to these, your people. Sanctify us in the truth, Lord, as your word is truth. Let us get this. Let us hear this. For those that are not of the faith, we're messing around with you. Grant them repentance and faith, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We're working our way through Mark's gospel here in chapter 6. Back in chapter 5, uh, we looked um, at the accounts of people placing their faith in Jesus. We saw the demoniac come to faith. We, we witnessed um, a woman with a blood flow for 12 years put her faith in Jesus. We saw Jairus put his faith in Jesus. We saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. 
So if, if chapter 5 was a focus on those who place their faith in Jesus, as we look at chapter 6, it's a focus on those who don't. And it all started with Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth, who rejected him. And from the rejection of those in his hometown, he went on to forewarn his disciples. That there'll be many who will reject their message of him. So he prepared them and he, he sent them out. There will be those who will refuse to hear. Not everyone hears the good news of Jesus Christ will receive it. they may outright reject it. Others may be fascinated at first and fizzle out at last. Sandwiched in between the sending out of his 12 two by two and their return back to him, Um, is the record of Herod's murder of John the Baptist to show that rejection can get you killed. That is, rejection of Jesus can get you killed, and it can come from high levels of government. This passage, beloved, provides for us a glimpse into a man whose conscience dies a slow, slow death. Conscience will often lie dormant, seemingly sound asleep until all of a sudden um, the sight of a certain face, the sound of a certain voice, the mention of a certain name, a visit to a certain place, causes the conscience to loudly be awakened. And that is because, my friends, God has not left himself without a witness, even in the hearts of unbelievers. As fallen and corrupt as mankind is, In and of himself, we all have a conscience showing, as the scripture says, that the work of the law is written on the heart. Bearing witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Romans chapter 2. Now, certain thoughts can cause great unrest. And though we may attempt to erase them from our minds, thoughts, even in those in positions of great authority, can become restless, afraid, superstitious, and paranoid. When Jesus' name had become known by way of his apostles that he sent out, remember they went out in his power? They went out preaching his gospel. They went out preaching his kingdom. 
They went out with the, the power he delegated to them to cast out demons and heal the sick and all of this. Eventually, through their testimony, um, words about Jesus crept into the Herodian palace. Notice verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. You know, often those, those in high places um, are, are, are the last to hear of spiritual news because of their pride, because of their position, and so on. And here, the result of the apostles making much of Jesus along the way as they preached throughout Galilee, it made its way up the ranks and into the ears of Herod. Now, the theme of our text this morning, beloved, points out for us the slide, okay? The slide into the oblivion of unbelief. This is a sober reminder for all of us that unrepentant sin leads to guilt, which leads to compounded guilt. Unrepentant sin then leads to confrontation with the truth, and unrepentant sin, after confrontation with the truth, leads to folly, and folly in your unrepentant sin leads to hardening and eventually, ultimately, a searing of the conscience. That's the theme of the text before us this morning. So here's Herod. Herod gets word. Let's, let's talk about Herod. This is Herod Antipas. Okay, you're going to have to follow me, my, follow me on this Herodian thing today, okay? So you've got to stay tuned in. This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, who 30 years earlier was greatly disturbed by the birth of Jesus. You remember him? Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't a Jew. He came from the line of Esau. And when Jesus was born... We read that Herod the Great, not this one, but his father, was greatly disturbed along with all of Jerusalem. Remember in Matthew 2, when the Magi came in from the east seeking to worship this King Jesus. Threatened by the kingship of another is what led to the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. In his paranoia, he instructed his henchmen to slaughter all of the baby boys two years old and under in Bethlehem. Slaughter of the innocents. That's not unlike us, beloved. Who want to rule and run our own lives because we're threatened by this king, Jesus, in our unbelief. Remember he said to the Magi, okay, guys, go seek him out. Find out where he's at. Come back and report to me so I can go worship worshiping too, right? Appearing religious. In resistance to him today, we may try to appear fairly religious and we say, oh, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. Not concerned with the one true God who will rule and reign on the throne of of our lives. Instead, we'll say, you know, to me, God is like, and then we attempt to, to reshape him in a vain attempt to try and control him. You control a, control a God you make in your own mind because he's no God. He's a figment of your imagination. 
So to say one believes in God and to reject Christ is the only way to God, if that's you, you're of the Antichrist. It says the word of God. Look at 1 John 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, that Herod that, that, that rejected the Christ, attempting to slaughter him, um, he became even harder over time. And history tells us that just prior to the death of Herod the Great, an evil, paranoid man, he murdered all the people that he thought might be a threat to his throne, including one of his own sons, just five days before Herod himself died. That's paranoia. That's fear. That's pride. Now, once Herod the Great died, that, of course, is the time that the the angel appeared once again to Joseph to lead Mary and Jesus, who's just a boy, back to Nazareth from Egypt. From out of Egypt, I called my son, fulfilled in Christ. Now, after they returned to Nazareth, eventually... Um, the land was divided between Herod the Great's three sons, okay? Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, and Philip. It was divided up amongst those three. Now remember, Israel, being under Roman rule, under the power of Rome, had regional leaders to do Caesar's bidding. These were the Herods. The Herods, they were puppet rulers. They weren't real kings, They were puppet rulers. They had minimal plot power. So any blunder on their part under the power of Rome, they would be replaced, exiled, or even executed. So they weren't really kings. They they were more administrators than they were kings, but they fancied themselves as kings. So Mark here, referring to King Herod, there, there may be a tone of sarcasm there. They weren't real kings, but they loved to appear as though they were. Now, the fact that Jesus' disciples are out proclaiming his kingdom and proclaiming Jesus as king began to have this rippling effect, and it caused concern now in, in, in high circles. And I want you to notice first an accused conscience. Okay? First, an accused conscience showing us here that unrepentant sin leads to guilt. It's the first thing. Notice verse 14. King Herod heard of it. That Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. In him, that is Jesus. But others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Sleeping conscience, awakened. Guilty. Okay, now at first, there there was widespread disagreement as to who Jesus was. Um, He was here, uh, John who was killed. Others believed he was Elijah. Now we read from Malachi this morning. Malachi prophesied one would come before Messiah. 
Others said he's like one of the prophets of old. And Luke actually records that he's one of the prophets of old that's been resurrected from the grave. All views took Jesus as a prophet. But apparently not as the great prophet, the greatest prophet, the prophet of all prophets, God's only son, the Messiah. And here, when news came up to Herod's ears, his conscience is afflicted. Notice a confession. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, the Jewish mind always understood, beloved, that resurrection preceded judgment. Jews always had this eschatological expectation of the coming of the age and that there would be judgment, the coming of the end of the age, rather. Now, the last time that we heard of John the Baptist, look back at chapter 1, verse 14. After John was arrested, okay, way back in chapter 1 is the last time we heard of John. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So here in chapter 6, verse 16, this, this would come to a shock if you're a first-time reader, right? Just, man, the last time I heard about John, he was locked up. Now he's dead? When did that happen? Right? We're going to find out when that happened. So having ordered the execution of an innocent man... Herod's conscience is screaming as words of Jesus begin to stir about. You know, the world is filled with people who know what it is to carry around the weight of guilt over past sin. Perhaps you're one of those, or you were one of those at one time before Christ saved your soul. And what they do is they work to try and escape its charges. They try to alleviate its anxiety. Perhaps that was you. They try to quiet the voice of conscience. They try to ignore God. Perhaps that was you. Unrepentant sin leads to guilt, compounding guilt. It furthers guilt over time. And that's where Herod is now, here in this account. Okay, so that's Herod, okay? Herod Antipas, his conscience is screaming because Jesus is out doing miracles, and he doesn't know who Jesus is. He thinks it's John raised from the dead whose head he lopped off. Okay, are you with me? Okay, there's Herod. Now, he lopped off the head of John. John is the Baptist, so let's talk about John. What was John's message when he came out? A message of what? Repentance, very good repent, which means to have a change of thinking. Change how you think. Turn around. Do a 180. Repent, Israel. Repent. Now, John was very unusual, was he not? Yeah, thank you. Yes. Now, although he was, no doubt, very unusual in his attire, in his lifestyle... Remember, he was clothed with camel's hair. He was girded with a leather belt. He lived in the wilderness, and he ate locusts and wild honey. It wasn't, beloved, his eccentricity that got him into trouble. What was it? His preaching. His preaching got him into trouble. See, John was a bold preacher. He preached with authority. And oftentimes... Those who preach unashamedly, those who proclaim the gospel without apology, 
will find themselves in trouble. You know, the unbelieving world has never spoken well of God's true messengers. It didn't speak well of John. It didn't speak well of the apostles. The unbelieving world never spoke well of Jesus, nor does it speak well of those who preach his truth, that is, the true truth, to this very day. Remember the warning Jesus gave if the world speaks well of you? Especially if you're a preacher. Luke 6, verse 26. Woe to you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the what prophets? The false prophets. God's true prophets were hated, reviled, beaten, tortured, and killed. In contrast to false prophets who Jesus said were spoken well of. Why? Because they tell people what they want to hear. Why do you suppose that so much of the media and the unbelieving world speak so well of the Joel Osteens of life? Let me help you out. Because he's a false teacher. If Oprah Winfrey can sit in the front row of what he calls church and walk out and think it was great, you didn't preach God's word God's way. And just in case you have a problem with me occasionally naming names, let me say this in love. You need to get over that. Jesus did it. His apostles did it. And anyone who stands for the truth will do it. So anyone with an earshot who thinks they all preach the same message will finally gain some discernment. Many believers in our day, professing believers, okay, I'm talking Christians, still chafe under bold, authoritative preaching. They chafe under it. It bothers them. And in response to authoritative preaching, they'll usually speak of the messenger as being arrogant. Because they confuse arrogance with authority. Don't do that. I've been with guys and have heard a world-class preacher preach. One was Steve Lawson, the other was John MacArthur. And I said, hey, what do you think? He goes, those guys are arrogant. I go, arrogant? They never said a word about themselves. You mean you have a problem with their authority? John preached with boldness, clarity, urgency, and humility. He didn't preach himself. John knew who he wasn't. What did he say? I'm not the Christ. Right? I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm not the bridegroom, I'm the best man. And I'm here to point you to him. I must decrease. He must increase. Why? Because he's the Lamb of God who takes the way of the sin of the world. Look to him. And he said it with authority. Not arrogance. That's humility. John didn't preach himself. Therefore, he spoke with arresting boldness. Right here. John was a straight shooter, amen? Was John a respecter of men? No. 
He was just like his Lord, who was no respecter of men. Remember when the Pharisees showed up and John was baptizing? Did he say, welcome, brethren? Did he? No. He said, look, what do you brood of vipers want? Right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? You bunch, you pit of snakes? That's not Dale Carnegie philosophy there. <laughs> How to make friends and influence people or whatever it is. Now, in, in, in verses 17 and following, Mark goes back more than a year, maybe a year and a half in time to fill us in in what led to this great fear, this great paranoia, this accused conscience of Herod. And he provides details as to why Herod was beheaded. Are you with me? Yeah? Okay, good. Now, if his conscience had been sleeping, it's been rudely awakened here when he's been hearing words about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Josephus, the first, his, the first century historian, tells us that John was held in Herod's great fortress, his palace in Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea. You can look it up in a Bible encyclopedia later. But we're told there that its towers were, were 160 cubits tall. Th- that's amazing. And deep down in that mountain were dungeons. These were prison cells way down below. This was Herod's vacation home. He loved spending time here. And this is where he had John imprisoned. As he's up in the palace, John's down below, locked up. And frequently, he would bring John up to hear him preach. He liked to hear John preach. And he also allowed... John's disciples to visit when he was locked up here because if you recall when John was locked up he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him are you the one or are we to look for another Jesus didn't go back and put his arm around him he sent him back with scripture scripture is fulfilled I'm here remember that now Herod had him arrested for a couple reasons Josephus tells us that there was a political side to it And that is that Herod feared that John's influence over the people might be cause for rebellion. That was his fear. He's he's a paranoid man. He feared that they were ready to do whatever John would say, whatever John might advise. So his suspicious temper sent John to his prison at his vacation home. Mark tells us there was much more to it than that. It was a very personal reason. Look at verse 17. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him to prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, the relationships within the Herod family, trust me, were a tangled, twisted web indeed, okay? So let's try to just unravel it just a bit. Right? Now, Herod the Great, which I mentioned earlier, Herod the Great had ten wives and a number of children with those wives. Herodias, this Herodias, was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She married her half-uncle, Philip. <laughs> and then the two of them had a daughter, Josephus tells us, by the name of Salome. 
Philip was deposed by Rome eventually. That is, he was ousted from his position. Philip and Herodias moved to Rome. Antipas one day paid his brother a visit and became infatuated with his brother's wife, who was also his niece. Are you still with me? Now, Herod Antipas was already married to a very prominent girl who was the daughter of the king of Arabia. Okay? So, Herodias, being a a social climber, if you will, um, when her husband fell out of favor with the Roman authorities, she latched on to his brother, Herod Antipas, seeing him, at least in her eyes, as a rising star. She leaves Philip, and she goes and marries her other half-uncle. Antipas. She gets a new role. She gets to be called queen. She gets a new palace. She gets servants and everything that goes with it. This relationship was not only adulterous, but it was incestuous. And John was in the way. Get the picture? John was in the way. Verse 17, it was Herod who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been preaching over and over again, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Can you imagine this? What did the law say? Leviticus 18.16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, for it is your brother's nakedness. She is his. Leviticus 20, 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He's uncovered his brother's nakedness. Now, they were both guilty. They both knew it. And they attempted to suppress the rise of truth in their midst. Unrepentant sin leads to guilt, leading to compounded guilt, which eventually leads to confrontation with the truth. Here it is. Here now, an awakened conscience. Notice Herodias' response, verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That's perplexing. His, his conscience was awakened. He heard John preach. He loved to hear John preach, although it perplexed him. He knew he had stolen his brother's wife. He knew that he unlawfully divorced his own wife. He knew he had sinned by arresting and killing John the Baptist, an innocent man. We read of his own testimony in verse 17. This is John, whom I've beheaded. He's risen. He's raised from the dead. You see, John the Baptist would open the word of God to Herod. John the Baptist wasn't afraid to point out Herod's sin. John the Baptist pointed him to God. John the Baptist pointed him to his need for God. He's a violator of the law like we all are, and you need to repent and call on the Lord for his mercy. This is what John did. 
why would this powerful man, verse 20, fear this wild desert man, this crazy guy who's never cut his hair, right? Nazarite never cut his hair, camel's hair, vest, leather belt around. He's, this is like Elijah in the Old Testament. Hmm. Why did he fear him? Well, let me tell you this. It's for the same reason, beloved, that modern unbelievers and religious spiritualists are frightened of Christians who, who display godliness, zeal, and commitment to the word of God without apology. Same reason. Now, if you're a compromised believer... You don't have a powerful testimony. Right? If you strive because you want to be cool like the world, you don't have a powerful testimony. The testimony of godliness is powerful. Notice, Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So he heard him preach, and he liked to hear him preach. He was perplexed by his preaching, but he liked to hear his preaching. Big warning here. John's in prison, under the palace. Herodias literally had it in for John. You know, we could compare Herod Antipas, follow me, with King David on many levels here. But the way they respond to confrontation of the truth is a juxtaposing picture of the saved and the depraved. Okay, think about it. Both rulers committed adultery. David, outright. Herod, through an illegitimate divorce. Both eventually committed murder in an attempt to cover their actions. In both cases, prophets confronted them with their sin. Nathan confronted David. John confronted Herod. However, both men responded very differently when they were confronted with the truth. David, with repentance. Psalm 51, he was cut to the quick. He sought the Lord's forgiveness. He was a broken, sorrowful man. God, against you and you alone, I have sinned. Though he sinned amongst amongst towards a bunch of other people. He knew that he primarily sinned against God. Herod, unrepentant, who descended further and further into sin and unbelief. Boy, he loved to hear John preach. Unrepentant sin leads to guilt, which leads to further guilt, That unrepentant sin will eventually lead to a confrontation with the truth, which then leads to folly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet. These people who throw parties for themselves. I don't get you. (laughs) On his his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders. And the leading men of Galilee. So it's Herod's birthday. There's only one other place in Scripture that I found of a birthday party, and that was Pharaoh, the Pharaoh 
at the time of Joseph. So this is an enormous party. I mean, this would take weeks to organize, beloved. Okay, because you're inviting people from all over the land. And here, Herod, he lives in the lap of luxury, laziness, and lust. He invites military leaders. He invites political leaders. He invites businessmen. You have Jews. You have Gentiles. There's food like you've never seen. There's wine and drink like you've never seen. And there's always guaranteed to be a show. This is an all-male party, by the way. That's why Herodias is outside. Raucous activity. So the opportune time came, right? The opportune time was a strategic occasion for Herodias, who's still trying to find a way to kill John. She was an angry, vindictive, bitter woman, and there's probably nothing more frightening than that. Word. Herod was a spineless man who was always manipulated by her. He allowed himself to be manipulated by this angry, vindictive, bitter woman. And mostly, most likely by this point in time in the narrative, he was well lubricated, highly intoxicated, most likely. And Herodias knows, I've got him trapped. I know this man's weaknesses. So it's with this scene set before us that we now read verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. This is a conscience now spurned. The conscience that was awakened is now ignored. Herodias' daughter here is clearly acting at the direction of her mother, again, who knew all of Herod's weaknesses. She sends her in. What a mom she is. You get this? What a mom. This would have been a rude and rowdy scene. Now, according to legend... Herodias' daughter was a very attractive young lady, only a mid-teenager, maybe 15. And her mother sends her into that crowd to do this. Now, at these all-male parties, they they usually consisted of dancers, no doubt. But the dancers, uh, the dancing, rather, was performed by women who had less than an honorable reputation, if you get the drift. So this would be very shocking for a princess to do this kind of thing. And her mother sends her in. This is a Jezebel-like woman. See, this dance isn't to show what she's been learning in ballet class. Okay? She's not in there waltzing with gentlemen. (laughs) Okay? This was a lustful, lascivious kind of dance. And it played on the depravity of these men. It spirals out of control, drunken lust, and this is a very, very strategic move on behalf of this evil woman. Smart. Evil. Evil can be smart. 
So having worked her mother's scheme, if you notice, we read, the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, I'll give it to you. And he promised with an oath. Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? She didn't know. What, a couple stallions, mama? A new carriage? What? She was being used. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist in the platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. Herodias finally trapped him. She used her daughter as a pawn. She didn't know what the dance was all about. She just did the dance. She comes back, asks mom, what should I ask? And notice, notice the response is instantaneous. I want John's head. Like mother, like daughter, immediately with haste, she went back in and asked for his head. Notice at once. Why at once? So that Herod could not change his mind. At once, I want his head. You ask me what I want, I want his head now. As per instructions of her mother. And notice the daughter adds, oh, and on a platter, by the way. Two women asked for this. Herodias and her daughter. It's shocking. It's disgusting. It's awful. It's twisted. And notice verse 26. His proud boast in front of all the boys, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. His boast is met with great distress. He realizes he's been set up. He's exceedingly sorry. You know what this is? This is truly, this is torment of his soul. Okay? This is torment of his soul, yet he was unwilling to refuse her. So there was something stronger here than the voice of John. There was something stronger here than his respect for John. There was something stronger here than not only the voice of John, but something stronger than the voice of his own conscience. Verse 26 gives us the answer. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. So here's John, the one whom, whom Jesus called the greatest of all men, born of women, a bold, clear, humble preacher is murdered. He's dead. There are no last words from John the Baptist. You know, many great saints of the past who have been burned at the stake had an opportunity to speak their last words. Not John. He's dead. You know what? Mission accomplished. He stepped into glory. Who will be at the right hand of Jesus on his throne? John and James asked for it. Actually, they had their mommy ask for it. Jesus said, that's not for me to give. Only my Father in heaven can give that. Who, who might be there? I don't know. Maybe it's metaphorical. I don't know. Could it be John the Baptist? Moses? I don't know. Interesting. 
Something to think about. Notice verse 29. When his disciples, that is when John's disciples heard it, not Jesus' disciples, John's disciples. When his disciples heard it, they came, took his body, laid it in a tomb. Now, Matthew's parallel account, Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, says, after John's disciples came to take his body for burial, we read there that they went and they told Jesus. Now, when Jesus got word of this, now again, this is about a year and a half or so before this record. Matthew 14, 13 says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Why? Quite simply, beloved, this is a monumental event. And John's death here is providing a glimpse, a very dramatic preview of what's going to happen to him. Jesus is going to be led to Jerusalem. He will be arrested. He will be imprisoned. And he will be put to death. John foreshadows that be rejected so this makes the looming cross all the more vivid therefore it calls for silence therefore it calls for sorrow and therefore it calls for seclusion so he goes away by himself and he ponders this there's a danger to beware of here beloved There are those who find certain things attractive about the Bible. There are people who find the church to be somewhat attractive. There are people who who find God's people somewhat attractive because they believe what they believe. Herod found it to be attracting that John was a man of conviction. There are some people who may start attending because they're attracted. And there's a season of awakened consciousness. They're awakened for a season. They feel the weight of conviction. They're stirred by it. It's weighty. They feel the gravity. And they become strangely attracted to the truth and those who speak the truth, especially perhaps if they speak with boldness. It's attractive. Strangely attractive. but that's as far as they go. Fizzle out. Warning. How you hear and respond to God's word preached, as I said earlier, is a matter of eternal significance. It's possible to listen to it It's possible to be moved by it. It's possible to admire it. It's possible to admire true, bold preaching. Man, listen to him go. He's not afraid of anybody. And then to deny it, to reject it for yourself. This is what happened. See, it's possible to fear like Herod. Notice, Herod feared John, knowing him to be a righteous man. So he listened gladly. He was perplexed half the time, but he listened gladly. So that tells us he was externally tuned in. He was outwardly interested, but he was never moved to trust Christ within. That's the danger. Don't let that be you. People are raised in Christian homes. 
in the truth. They experience God's kindness, his mercy, but they ignore it and they resist it. And eventually their conscience becomes seared. Lesson. Conscience ignored and conscience spurned eventually leads to death of the soul, a conscience seared. If you're in that dangerous territory, come to Christ. Repent of that and come to Christ. Come to Christ and you shall be saved. Entrust yourself to Christ and you shall be saved. Repent inwardly and you shall be saved. If you think that's extreme, listen to the rest of the message. Now, I think it's very likely that Herod had nightmares. Fair to say? Okay, especially when he heard reports of the mission of the apostles preaching Christ. News was spreading around Galilee. It makes, it, it makes its way up to his palace, and, and he's saying, ah, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead, the guy I killed. He's come back to haunt me. Is that likely? I think it's very likely. But beloved, neither nightmares nor appreciation for the truth proclaimed or respect of godliness for another can bring a a hardened, calcified heart to the place of repentance and faith. No. See, for fear of people, For for fear of losing his throne, for unrepentant, foolish pride, he damned his own soul to hell. How do I know that? Follow the scriptures. In Luke 9, verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to seek him. He sought to seek Jesus. He wanted desperately to see Jesus. He heard so much about Jesus. His conscience was awakened by the preaching of Jesus. And he would see Jesus. He will see Jesus. And he will see Jesus with a seared conscience. Herod will come face to face with Jesus. Luke 23. Jesus is arrested. Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He finds out Herod's in town. Oh, he's of Herod's jurisdiction. Let me wash my hands of him and get him out of my presence, and I'll send him to Herod. He goes to Herod. Luke 23, 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wanted to see Jesus do a trick. So he questioned him at some length. But, here's the big but. He, Jesus, gave him no answer. Silence. The eternal son of God. Savior of the world, God incarnate, standing in front of Herod, was silent. He asked Jesus over and over again. And here is Jesus, the tender, gracious shepherd. He asked him many questions. Jesus refused to answer him. 
Herod had his day. Friends, Herod had his day. The day of grace passed. Passed. He didn't listen to John so as to respond to John's message. The final Old Testament prophet turned to Christ. When he faced Christ, he didn't listen. How then did Herod respond to the silence of Jesus? Let me answer that. With further hardening, he mocked him. He was hardened by his sin. Now he can't repent. Notice verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this day, they were at enmity with one another. And now they're boys. Without true repentance and faith, an awakened conscience only leads to a spurned conscience that eventually, in that unrepentance, leads to another kind of conscience, and that is one that is seared forever. Something, isn't it? Unrepentant sin, again, leads to guilt, which leads to compounded guilt. Unrepentant sin leads to confrontation with the truth. Unrepentant sin then leads to folly. That folly leads to a hardening and a searing of conscience. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the lesson's clear. Actually, he says crystal clear. Unless we silence sin, sin will silence conscience. And let me add, the greatest of which is the sin of unbelief. Unless we heed God's word, the day may come when we despise God's son. And then God will have nothing more to say. To us, end quote. Unrepentant sin, my friends, will turn on you. It will master you, and then it will destroy you. Praise God, while there's hope. Amen? There's still hope. If you're breathing, there's hope. There, if you're breathing, there's hope to be forgiven and made whole by the blood of Jesus Christ. So if this is you this morning, there's hope for you. As the light of Christ shines into your dark, rebellious heart, confronting you with truth, do not persist in unrepentance. This is grace calling out. Become a follower of Christ so that you do not become hardened against Christ. Turn to the Lord immediately in repentance and faith. Friends, there's no second chance when you die. Hell is eternal. There's no second chance. Now is the day of salvation. So listen to God's very strange messengers and turn to Christ now. Jesus conquered sin and death. He laid down his life for his, what? Sheep. Are you one of his sheep? Then you can rejoice. Rejoice gladly this morning. 
Because Jesus who died is far greater than John the Baptist. He is Elijah who was to come, but Jesus' death will save us from our sins. John's death doesn't save anyone from their sins. Only Jesus' death saves from sin. Because Jesus' death is the very death of death itself. Amen? Amen. He's your hope. So rejoice in him today, beloved, in all that he's accomplished on our behalf, that he's given us the light, that we see the truth. So today, if you hear his voice, the scripture says, do not harden your hearts. Amen? Do not harden your hearts. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come to Christ if you're not in Christ. If you are in Christ, rejoice in Christ. Listen to your conscience according to the word of God.